this episode of 92i Talks, Academy Award-winning actress Rachel Weiss sits down with Real Pieces moderator Annette Insdorf to discuss her new film, Disobedience, and a career that includes mainstream successes like The Bourne Legacy and independent prize winners. The conversation was recorded on April 23rd, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and um, as we all saw a moment ago, Dramatic roles seem to be your forte. I mean, when I went through your filmography, there are a lot of serious parts in what we would call dramas. But then at, in The Brothers Bloom, I see this, you know, very playful side. Um, do you, like, are you sorry that more comedies are not offered to you? Do you want to do more of them? Or do you feel drama is your forte? Um. I would be thrilled to do more comedy if any, if any came my way, yeah. Um, I don't think I know how to play comedy. I'm not a comedian, but there are, I think you can act straight and end up, sometimes more seriously you take something, the, the, the possibility of being funny occurs. That's true. And actually in The Brothers Bloom, it works partly because there's, you're not trying to be funny. You're actually funny in spite of yourself, the character that She's is. She's quite ser deadly serious, I yeah. think. Yeah. 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 And Adrian Brody was probably um, a very delightful partner for that. We, I interviewed him, him on a stage here, and uh, he was a very thoughtful actor. And I'm guessing that that was not a painful thing to do, <laughs> to work with him. Um, I was also curious what it must have been like for you in 2003, when you were a relatively young actress, um, Runaway Jury was starring both Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman, mm -hmm. who were already icons at that point, and there you were. Could you talk a little about working with them at that stage of your career? Yes, I mean, they were both legends. And, and John Cusack, even though he was, he was a young legend, uh, I was working with in the film as well. Yeah, Dustin was very, I'd actually worked with him once before um, this, so I'd met him Confidence. before. Yes, yes. And he he's the kind of actor, he's, he's wonderful for other actors because he'll be off camera and he'll start improvising with you and say things to get reactions or make you blush or... I remember actually it was in Confidence, I had to say something, I can't remember what the line was, I had to say something to him and my character was not particularly into him in any way. And, and he said from off camera, he said, say that like you love me. And it, it got some reaction that was kind of unactable. It was just a, a real reaction. So he, he's wonderful like that. And he's very um, supportive in, in, in the way that he says really crazy things from off camera to, to, to keep you alive, which I appreciated. And I'm guessing that Gene Hackman is sort of the opposite. From what I've heard, he's uh, a more restrained or... He doesn't maybe articulate as much on the set about his part or anyone else? Yeah, I mean, actually, Dustin wasn't analyzing um, the scene or breaking it down. He was being a kind of mischievous, improvisational, um, uh, like, creature. <laughs> He's a bit of a creature, I would say. And Gene Hackman also doesn't sit around and analyze. I mean, I find with lots of really great actors, they don't really want to sit around and discuss it. But I know what you mean about Gene. He's very, um, I, f that for me was one of the, the scariest moments um, of my working life to that moment. So, trying to be tough, 
to Gene Hackman right. um, was really, uh, it was, it sort of seemed preposterous. Luckily, it was very scary for the character too. She was, it was a put on. She was pretending to be this tough chick and really she was petrified. So in a way there was, it was close to what was happening. But he is, I don't know, Gene Hackman to me is kind of, I worship him. Yeah. I, yeah. If yeah. I had to say, you know, the two or three greatest American actors of the last part of the 20th century, yeah. even just based on his performance in The Conversation, Coppola's film of 1974, mm -hmm. he moves up to, and maybe even for me above, Pacino, De Niro, Nicholson, Duval. I mean, these are for me the, the truly extraordinary ones. Mm -hmm. um, now, and for me, it's because, you, I don't know why it is for you what makes an actor extraordinary is I cannot see the acting. I, I can't see it. And there is, there's, even though he is not that character, he is that character in that moment, and I can't see any separation. And also, let's face it, his, the level of masculinity that he has is just kind of extraordinary. <laughs> you yeah. can't act that either. He's just, that's how he yeah. came out, you know? That's right. Yeah, it's like, oof. Yeah. Okay, enough about the actors. Yeah, now enough I'm about Gene. <laughs> um, the first clip we showed from Enemy at the Gates, yes. I noticed um, that that was a pretty long take. In other words, the camera stayed on you for quite some time mm -hmm. as you developed um, what you were saying to Jude Law. And I was wondering, as an actor, do you find that when you can do a long take, in other words, when it's not cut up by the director, that that allows you to give a more deeper sustained performance, that the emotion can continue, or does it not make that much of a difference for you? It's heaven to do a long take. Whether the whole thing ends up uncut in the movie is, is, is out, of, out of my control, but yeah, it's wonderful. I love, um, I love long takes where you see what happens. It's like surfing a wave and, you know, it's, I love it. Yeah, love it. I, actually, I've never heard that expression that makes so much sense to me, like surfing a wave, the fluidity of it. I know that these days Hollywood films tend to be so much more cut, cut, cut. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, you move the camera, action, action. But I, I, I breathe differently when I watch an actor who's allowed to say and move through a scene mm. without being, you know, mm. chopped. I love watching an actor's full, a full take because it's, it, it's all on them. It's not the, yeah. I once heard that among your favorite actors was Jenna Rollins. Yeah. And I'm mentioning that in this context because for me the greatest director in film history in terms of long takes that allow an actor to develop and sustain emotion was John Cassavetes. And A Woman Under the Influence mm. is for me the great example of I'm, that. I'm with you, put it there. <laughs> I'm with you, yeah, completely. Just doesn't get any greater. Sorry. No, that's uh, quite all right. Yeah. Um, now, I, I'm curious about something because I know that you were born in London to Edith Ruth Teich, a psychoanalyst from Vienna, and I just learned that her father was from Krakow, yeah. which is where my mother was from. This is kind of touching for me. Um, and your father, George Weiss, was an inventor from Hungary. And they both emigrated to England before World War II began. And I, if you don't mind my asking, because we're at the 92nd Street Y, since you've played such notable Jewish characters in films, not only Enemy at the Gates, not only um, Denial, not only your new film, Disobedience. Um, how important, if at all, is your Jewish identity to the professional life, to the roles that you play? I mean, have you in any sense 
actively sought these out or they happened to come along to you? I haven't actively sought them out. And I, I, for me, acting is a sort of, uh, it's a shape-shifting and a kind of escapology from your own identity. So I'm not, on the whole, that interested in just replicating my identity for fiction, for just for the sake of it. Um, and actually, out of, I don't know how many jobs I've done now, a bunch, I've only done, I forgot, uh, uh, three, three Jewish roles. So Sunshine? Oh, four. There you four. go. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> I've oh, been no, doing actually, homework. She, like, wasn't, she wasn't she completely wasn't, Jewish. Yeah, she wasn't Jewish. Okay, sorry. But yeah, so in a way, the ratios. So, so I guess the answer to your question is I'm interested in playing people of all different backgrounds, um, some which will overlap with mine and some which radically won't. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, that so, makes sense. Yeah. And actually, the shape-shifting term that you just invoked is going to be eminently visible in Real 3 when we show a clip from Complete Unknown, which is about a woman who's constantly reshaping her identity and appearance. Um, I'm going to also ask about The Constant Gardener because obviously that was an important film. You won the Academy Award and it was from Jean Le Carré's novel directed by Fernando Mereles. This kinetic blend of love story and political corruption, humanitarian ideals, there was such a, a tension between the shy character played by Ray Fiennes mm -hmm. and your impassioned activist Tessa mm -hmm. and the way that she galvanizes the story. Um, so I, I'm curious about how you worked with Fernando Mereles because this is the Brazilian director who also did City of God about the poor children in Brazil's uh, poorest neighborhoods and you worked with him again in 360. Yes. Um, he seemed to bring out so much in you and in the material of the story. Could you talk a little about what he, because he's a different kind of director from the ones up to that point. Yes, I mean, as you say, he he was from Brazil, so it wasn't he wasn't claiming to um, deeply understand British culture. Rafe Fiennes was playing incredibly British diplomat, very reserved, as you say. Um, he he it was it was sort of like being in a documentary. In, in many in many ways, the the camera wasn't fixed. There wasn't lighting. We were allowed to move around. We were allowed to improvise. It was kind of like jazz, I guess. That that, that there were fictional, there were narrative plot points that we had to hit, but we could riff on them and go all over the place. So, I would say there was more um, freedom um, than I've ever had before or since wow. um, from a director. He he was just happy for the actors to. It was sort of as if. This was my husband, and this was my house, and I know that sounds really crazy, but normally the ratio of, um, you know, uh, crew to actors, there's more crew, there's more lighting, there's more uh, kind of the paraphernalia of what's making it a film around, but there was almost nothing. It was just the room, a little camera. Um, yeah, it was very, very free. I can't remember what your question no, was. No, no, that, that, yeah. that answers yeah. it. Okay. No, because you... I, we obviously could have shown a clip tonight from The Mummy or The Mummy Returns or from Constantine. You know, there's so many. The well Mummy's my great. It's my greatest film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually very proud of it. Um, and and yeah. you have every reason to be, yeah. and it certainly made the most money of all the films I think that you've done. But I personally, and I suspect many people in this audience, are a bit more interested 
indies, what we call specialty films, mm -hmm. or um, independent, or the meatier ones in terms of the complexity of characters and the vision of the world. And The Constant Gardener is, is I think, an, a perfect example. And it's also because Hollywood films have a lot of money invested in the crew, the set, and a Brazilian director who's made small films up to that point um, doesn't need any of that. He mm. just needs to look at you and have mm. you do what you and do. And actually, what, because he'd filmed in the favelas in, 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 um, in Rio, as you, as you were mentioning, and we were filming in Kibera, which was a, the favela of, of the slum of um, Kenya, of Nairobi, and we were actually um, playing fictional characters. I was dressed differently to myself. Rafe was playing his character, but we walked around the um, slum and we were filmed interacting with the people that live there. So it was this meeting of, you know, f fiction filmmaking with documentary, which is, I've never experienced that before. It was very, it was an extraordinary feeling. Yeah. Now, some of my favorite films of yours happen to be in the next uh, period that we're covering. Um, you're going to see some short clips Agora. I mean, most people never heard of this movie. It was from 2009, a historical drama. You play a philosopher and teacher in fourth century Alexandria. <laughs> and uh, we'll see a scene of you with Homayun Ershadi, this wonderful Iranian yes. actor. And I was saying backstage that, okay, I, full disclosure, one of the reasons I appreciate the whistleblower is that the director, Larissa Kondraki, was my student at Columbia, but that's not the only reason. Um, this is a film based on the true story of a Nebraska policewoman who served as peacekeeper in post-war Bosnia and confronted the UN for covering up a sex scandal, I mean, a, a sex trafficking of young women. Um, the third film, or the clip in this group, it's from a, a movie that I never heard of until I started doing my homework for tonight. It's called Page Eight, and it was written and directed by David Hare for British television, and uh, it co-stars the sublime and self-effacing Bill Nighy. We're going to take a look at these three clips and then resume the conversation. So a real two, if somebody could put the clips on. So Agora, mm -hmm. um, it was, if I understand correct, correctly, written for you by the Spanish director Alejandro Amenabar. I mean, is that, was that correct that he actually envisioned you for the I'm part? going to always think that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Well, I, what astounded me about the movie at the time, and still today, is you play this woman of such intelligence as well as integrity despite the completely distanced culture that the film takes place in. Um, it's such a feminist tale for me. I mean, it, it's about a woman that serves as a role model, I think, even for many of us today. Did you feel that when you were making the film at all? Certainly, yes. I did, I'd never heard of her, Hypatia. It turned out that she is a fem well, she was a big feminist icon in the Victorian age. Uh, people got very into her then, and then she kind of faded a bit. So if you're not a classicist, you might not know who she is. I, I hands up, didn't know who she was. Um, yeah, she was, um, she was an extraordinary teacher. Um, and she, I mean, uh, many of us kind of, 
it's possible that she figured out the heliocentric model. She figured out that the um, that the yeah, my science <laughs> is really rusty. So I really brushed up on it like that. Yeah, that the that the Earth isn't the center of the universe. The sun, the sun, the Earth goes round the sun. There we go. That's what she was explaining. <laughs> But we don't know for sure. There was a guy called Aristarchus earlier who'd posited it. But obviously, if uh, for, for, Christ, for the birth of Christianity had just happened, and that was just not okay, um, as you know, even later on, Galileo was you know not cool even um, in the 1600s. But yeah, she she ended up dying for uh, her belief. She wouldn't recant. Uh, Galileo did. She didn't, and she ended up being killed. Yeah, not the first time that a woman is scapegoated and considered a witch. There you go. That, you know. that's the, that's, that was the, that's the big headline I should yeah. have and, and it, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry if we're doing a spoiler <laughs> situation here because the film is magnificent and it does, it, it does not go to a happy ending. Um, and there are some fascinating characters besides yours, Oscar Isaac and Max Minghella have mm. important roles, men who don't quite know what to do with a woman who is simultaneously brilliant, beautiful, and has integrity, especially in a world where, I mean, the most painful scene in the film, except towards the end, is that when the Christians arrive, they burn the library of Alexandria. Mm. The book burning in that film mm. is also an unfortunately not isolated thing in, in human mm. history. Well, she believed in doubt. She's a scientist, and to be a scientist, you have to continually doubt. And I guess fundamentalism is the opposite of that. Of that. So the Library of Alexandria was so full of so many different texts with so many different points of view. It was, it was threatening to fundamentalism. Absolutely. Yeah. And I believe she was also celibate, so that was confusing to her. Um, these two men in her life, these two students, they, that puzzled them. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk more about Agora, but I'm guessing that most people here have never seen it or heard of it. By the way, we can't see you. Could I once again ask for a little bit more light on the audience so that we can just get a little bit more of a sense of who we're looking Hello. at? I don't like to look <laughs> at a dark void. Yeah. yeah, now, even a little bit more, just a titch more. Aha, that's, that's a little nice. bit better. Yeah. Okay, I can see the first row, but not yeah. much more, and now it's slightly better. The Whistleblower is a different kind of film, obviously, mm -hmm. in terms of the Also a true story, exactly. similar in that sense, but. And that one, I mean, um, did you actually spend time with the real Kathy Bolkovic in terms of preparation? Because it's the uprooting of a Nebraska cop to Bosnia and to, to deal with the sex traffic trade, which is unfortunately protected by the diplomatic immunity of even American men working there. I mean, that comes through a bit in the scene. Could you just talk a little about the preparation, but also the effect on you as a human being of playing a character like that in that world? Um, Kathy Bolkovac's story is very touching in that um, she would just say, I was doing my job. I'm a cop, I'm trained as a cop, and if I see injustice or wrongdoing, I can't not go towards it and shine a light on it. 
but what she doesn't realize is that she's an extraordinary person. And, it, and I find stories about people who, who think they're just being ordinary and following the line of duty, doing something extraordinary, I find that incredibly moving, that her moral compass was such that she risked her own life. In fact, her career certainly it was over and um, she was kind of vilified by the UN and wouldn't be employed, couldn't get a job for a long time. But yeah, she risked, it wasn't a question to her that she had to do the right thing. She found that the UN was sanctioning um, these, these basically sex slaves that were being brought over the border for UN soldiers um, to uh, use, I suppose is the right word. Yeah, so it was very moving. I didn't spend time with her in advance of the filming. She came out about halfway through. I didn't want to do an imitation of her we don't, we're not physically similar in any way, and she's very blonde, and I just thought it doesn't matter, I just want to get her spirit. So I, 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 hope, I, I hope I got her spirit. It feels that way to me. And, and one other thing to mention to this audience, um, Kathy Bolkovic brought this to the UN High Commissioner, um, I, the full title, I, mm -hmm, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Madeline Reese. And she's played in the film by Vanessa Redgrave, mm. who is, for me, one of the truly yes. great actors of our time. Um, and Reese is the one, Vanessa Redgrave's character later says, immunity, not impunity. The UN was formed out of the ashes of Auschwitz, which is a fascinating thing to hear out of Redgrave's mouth um, in particular. And I remember watching that film and it was one of the many things that struck me in terms of the resonance beyond the immediate movie because obviously each of you was putting so much of yourselves into a story that most people didn't know and would otherwise not be told. Mm. Um, you had, I think, two or three scenes with Vanessa Redgrave. Mm. Anything special about that? I just admire her so much and I was curious if, if that was... Um, a part of the film that meant a lot to you? Doing some scenes with her, very much so, yeah. I mean, talk about watching someone surf a wave. It's just, she'll, she'll just, she just follows her instinct wherever it takes her and she's completely daring and bold. And again, cannot see the acting. I, could, I couldn't see where her and the character began and ended. Um, she's fearless and um, powerful and yeah, she's really wonderful, wonderful to be opposite. Yeah. yeah. You know, obviously I, I hope you're all, all aware of the <clears throat> manipulation that I do with these evenings. I'm so desirous of everybody going out after this evening and, and you know, whether it's Netflix or Amazon Prime, whatever, to see these movies. Because when we give clips, it's like a tiny taste from what should be a really sumptuous meal. And every single one of these films deserves, you know, two hours or so of, of your attention. The Whistleblowers, I would say, is, yeah. it, is, a, is a good one, yeah. Of, of the roles that you've played, would that be one of the Definitely, key? yes, yes. I, I'm glad to I hear that. I think it's a wonderful film. Um, and David Hare, he also wrote the screenplay of Denial, which we'll see a clip mm -hmm. of in a moment. And he directed, in fact, he, that one. Page yeah. eight, he wrote and directed mm. it. And um, Bill Nye, he plays an MI5 security analyst, and you play Nancy, his sympathetic next-door neighbor. Um, I guess, I, I just think that Bill Nye is one of the great um, pieces of ammunition of British cinema, and now international. 
I find him remarkable, and I met him once or twice, totally self-effacing. He, he won't even like acknowledge that he's a great actor. He, he just laughs when people tell him that. Um, working with him, was there anything in particular about, because he seems to not place himself physically in an imposing way, the opposite of, say, Gene Hackman in, in Runaway Jury. <laughs> Just what it was like to work with him? Well, um, I'd, I'd known Bill as a fan um, from uh, when I was, I think I was about, I don't know, 15, and my mom had bought tickets um, to see uh, King Lear at the National Theatre. Um, Anthony Hopkins was playing lit. She was very worried about my education and she kept buying me tickets to see Shakespeare and sending me and my friends. And we sat there and, you know, uh, Hopkins was amazing. And then this actor came on playing Poor Tom. So I don't know, is that Edgar? But anyway, it was Poor Tom who was pretending to be mad. And it was Bill Nye. But I remember being 15 years old and just looking at this performance and I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. To me, it was like, at that time, I mean, it was, you know, a while ago now. For me, it was like watching Mick Jagger do Shakespeare. Wow. It was extraordinary. <laughs> he was very, very, it was, this is before he was a movie star. So I used to go and see plays that he was in and be at the stage door. So I was a proper fan for wow. many years. So that was our history. So it was funny to end up playing with him and then um, to but kiss him was very extraordinary. <laughs> it was very extraordinary. He, but he was also in The Constant Gardener. Yes, he was the, the very evil, manipulative, uh, he was the, the really the baddest yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah, in England anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't actually get to be, I wasn't in that scene because I was dead, the oh. character. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. But no, but he, I know exactly what you mean. It's as if he's sort of vacating his physical space as he's there, which is a, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very English kind of thing to do, to say, I'm here, but I'm not really here, but I'm here. It's a dance. It's a kind of, okay. it's, a, it's a dance of the seven veils from a, from a gentleman. And very different from Ray Fiennes, who also was in The Constant Gardener and has a small part in page eight, but his character is very much uh, a heavy. In, mm -hmm. in page you know, eight. Uh, uh, yeah, in page eight. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay, so for the last group, because we do want to get to Disobedience, which is opening Friday, but I feel obligated to show you the way that this 25-year career has evolved with such nuance, and there are real variations in the kinds of characters that you've been playing. So um, we're going to begin with what I gather is your own personal favorite, The Deep Blue Sea, Terrence Davies' film for which Rachel Weisz won the New York Film Critics Award for Best Actress, and it co-stars Tom Hiddleston. And then one of your biggest commercial successes, The Bourne Legacy, where your character and Jeremy Renner's are smart, sympathetic victims of a secret U.S. government agency, uh, employees deemed too dangerous to live. And then complete unknown is this lovely enigmatic drama about a woman, a mysterious one, who changes identities all the time. And finally, Denial is based on the true story of the American educator Deborah Lipstadt, who was sued for libel by Holocaust denier David Irving. And you're going to see the young lawyer, played by Andrew Scott, he has told her that the burden of proof in the UK is on the accused. And after 32 days of trial, she'll have, she'll have to maintain incredible control as the legal team insists on her silence, as well as insisting that no Holocaust survivors should take the stand. 
So we're going to see those clips before talking some more. Great. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much rich work, and much of which we couldn't even show because we don't have enough time. The Deep Blue Sea, um, I gather this is very close to you, and I'm curious what it was about the story or the making of the film that makes it one of your favorites. Um. I admire Terence Davies, the director, as a as an artist. He he uh, he tells. I love the the House of Mirth, for instance, that he did before this. I love all his films. They're very controlled environments. They're very stylized. It's the opposite of the Fernando Morales experience. Right. Completely the opposite. So you're stuck in the in the center of the frame. You can't move. You can't. Um, you, you have to you have to find the freedom inside. You can't. There's no uh, physical freedom. Um, and I guess the feeling I had working with him was that's probably what it felt like to be a woman in that period, struggling for freedom, struggling for, to love the man she wanted to love, to leave the man her husband she didn't want to be with, to try and make her own life. Um, and there was something about that that the her search for freedom and the way Terence filmed it, where I felt very um, restricted, that for me just made a cocktail of something extraordinary. It's also a, a great Terence Raskin play. I mean, it was, it's, uh, there's, there was a lot there in the text. Wow. Now, that's fascinating to me, though, because I, I confess I, it's rare that I hear an actor say that the constraint was the challenge that was desired, because you have to find something inside if you're not being allowed to express it physically. I didn't know I desired it until it happened, but I became desirous of it. What, you, know, you use what you get, I guess. Absolutely. It's the best way to put it. Um, by contrast, The Bourne Legacy is a very different kind of motion picture with a lot more physical violence, externalization of it. Roger Ebert wrote about the film, the Rachel Weisz character spends a lot more time on screen than females are often allowed in action movies, even though she isn't used for sex appeal, unquote. And that, for me, is a rather important point. I mean, would you agree? Do you, did you feel in this film that in an action movie you were getting to play a different kind of female character? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I thought about it. I suppose to go back to the mummy, that's a librarian in an action movie, which to me seemed quite an unusual combination. Um, uh, but she, yeah, I mean, she's a, a doctor. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. But, uh, but it worked. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons I appreciated The Bourne Legacy a bit more than the others in the series. It was your character. Um, and I have to mention Complete Unknown, because you play this emblem of a rather selfish self-creation. When we watched the film, my, my husband Mark, who is an actor, said that your character does what actors do, namely a shape-shifting where you, you know, get rid of one identity and just kind of assume another becoming someone else. How did you, and the director, Joshua Marston, how did you devise the multiple appearances and identities 
of this woman because it's kind of astounding and each one is perfectly realized. Well, in terms of the, the, um, the writing of the characters, Josh Marston wrote the script um, and he and his co-writer spent, Julian Shepard spent however many, however, you know, there was a lot of thought put into the different characters that my character had become. I mean, how she's different from an actress is that I go home at the end of the day and to my ordinary life, but um, she, this character actually lives these characters full time and then disowns them and becomes another one. Um, but in terms of the physical look of them, it was, a, I would say, a micro-budget film. So the physical looks were created that morning. Um, which was very exciting. So there's the kind of like the hippie girl, uh, you know, the youngest character there with the kind of dreadlocks. And we just, we just did it um, with a very talented hair and makeup team. Was there more improvisation doing that film than some of the others? Um, actually, no. It has a very improvisational feeling, but that the writing was like that. And Josh is not, um, he's not crazy on improv, yeah. This is also the director who made Maria Full of Grace, for example. And um, Forgiveness of Blood. I think this is his first English language film, even though he's American. I think I'm I right think in saying. I think you're absolutely yeah. right about yeah. that. Which is yes. unusual. Although he now he has a new film on Netflix, yes. um, starring Chiwetel Ejiofor as a pre It's called something, sun Come Sunday? Um, it's, it's currently on Netflix, English language. Yes. Uh, he's a very uh, versatile filmmaker. Mm. And before we get to disobedience, I did want to ask you about denial, um, especially because there's a scene in the film between you and the great actor Tom Wilkinson, um, playing a Isn't lawyer. Isn't he great? Yeah, I could he, go on about him. He comes to, well, he, Bill Nighy, these are like yeah. the creme de la creme. He comes to Deborah Lipstadt's hotel room with a good bottle of red wine. That's what he feels is necessary for whatever, to talk about their situation. And um, he tells her that well, he says, I'm sorry, you tell him that all you have is your voice and conscience, neither of which you can reveal in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And that line stayed with me because I sometimes wonder whether for someone like you, you're not just an actress, you obviously have a deep sensitivity to issues and, and to um, what exists in our real world. I mean, to what extent is it true for an actress that all she might have is a voice and a conscience. I mean, is that even in the same realm or am I over-reading into Deborah Lipstadt's line? Um, I would say my job is very different to Deborah Lipstadt's. Um, I, I, I love that's the sentiment of her character, but she's a historian and a documenter of um, history and some atrocities of history. So she has a kind of ideological social responsibility and a moral responsibility. I, I, I personally prefer characters and writing um, where there's a moral complexity or contradiction. And um, uh, so, so I, for me, I don't, I don't see storytelling um, as a kind of ideological art form necessarily. Some, some of the best stories, I mean, Hedda Gabler is, she's quite hard to explain sometimes, but she's the, one of the most fascinating characters ever written, Blanche Dubois. I mean, I, for me, uh, you know, people who might be doing, their lives are messy and they may be doing something immoral. Um, I find, I find then they're more human, more truthful, I can believe in them. So, um, does that sort of answer your question? Absolutely, and, and, and I think it's a very good answer because occasionally I, I may seek out 
um, a more impassioned vision that someone might have of the world as an actor, but you're being truthful and I think you're giving us the way that an actor has to feel about complexity of material and characters. And, and also not to judge people who are not noble people. You right. have to sometimes play people who are not noble. Yeah. And to accept and play their fallibilities and uh, yeah. hope that we recognize ourselves in them. Exactly. That's a perfect segue to disobedience. Oh, um, yeah. This is a film that you'll <laughs> all is. get to see beginning this weekend. <laughs> and what's important to me is that you are not just the star, but also producer of the film. And you play Ronit, a New York photographer who is suddenly called back to London when her father, a rabbi, dies. Um, I gather you optioned the novel by Naomi Alderman. This is, uh, the book was written in 2006. Um, and I'm, I'm, you, you've probably been talking about this an awful lot in, in all the press that you're doing, but could you talk a little bit about what led you to want to both produce and star in? Because they may not necessarily always be the same reasons. And in a moment, we'll talk about who you chose to direct it. Um, well, after, actually after The Constant Gardener, so about 10 years ago, I was asked by some producers, did I want to start a production company and find stories to tell? And I thought, well, that sounds like a wonderful idea, but I, I really didn't know what stories I wanted to tell. I had, I, it took me until about three years ago when I suddenly got an instinct for the kinds of stories I would be interested in help, helping to shepherd to the screen. And Disobedience was a book that I found fascinating because it's set um, in North London, very close to where I grew up, but it's a, a community that I have, I have and had no access to, um, that live in a, in a very different way, which is beautiful, spiritual, full of community, but you cannot remain there and, and express your homosexuality, your gayness. And there was something to me about um, its contemporary, um, but there are things that are very taboo within that culture. So I thought it was a, a really interesting place to talk about freedom and um, freedom to love who you want to love, freedom to follow your faith. Um, I was thinking about that film from the, do you remember Witness from the, from the Harrison Ford yeah. and Kelly McGillis. A different, a different film. So, I mean, it could have been set in an Amish community or a Mennonite. It just, Naomi Alderman actually did grow up within this community and then she did leave it and came to live in New York. She's not, I'm not saying she is Ronnie, but she's someone who was wrote from the outside looking back in. Um, so it, there was something about the story that fascinated me. I love the title, I love what it's about. I love the idea that to be disobedient can be existentially incredibly important and a moral duty in a way for your self-determination as a individual. Despite the fact that nice Jewish girls are brought up with obedience as part of the uh, agenda. <laughs> and we're going to show a quick clip from the scene where Ronit first goes back to London for the funeral. And I have to mention that it's not just Rachel Weiss whose performance is remarkable in this film. Rachel McAdams, uh, who some of you may remember when we showed Spotlight a few years ago, uh, plays Esty, her childhood friend, but with whom there was also already a romantic relationship in the teens. And for me, the revelation of the film is an actor named Alessandro Nivola, who some of you may have seen kind of more in supporting roles, like in The Wizard of Lies, um, also in Ginger and Rosa. He plays David, who is um, 
a cousin and, and childhood friend. And the heir apparent to, to my dead father, so he will be the new rabbi. Exactly. Yeah. So we're going to, sh actually, we'll, we'll show clip one and two together. The first is with uh, Duvid Alessandro Nivola, and the second is with Esti, Rachel McAdams. If we can show the disobedience clip. I agree with you that Alessandro Nivola is, ex I mean, just extraordinary, as is Rachel McAdams. Yeah, neither of them English, neither of them Jewish, and they really became something, they changed their DNA. Talk about it, not English and not Jewish. The director <laughs> that you chose for this is Sebastian Lelio. This is the Chilean director whose film, A Fantastic Woman, won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film a few months ago. And previously, he had made no English language films, but Gloria was the one that put him on the map, a Spanish language film that he has been making now, remaking in English with Julianne Moore. Um, now, I know that your, co your producer with you, Frida Torres Blanco, the two of you somehow came upon Sebastian Lelio. I mean, he's Chilean, not Jewish, never made a film in English. I don't even know what his religion is. Could you tell us about what made you go for him? Raised a Catholic, like m most people in Chile, I think maybe lapsed, um, uh, heterosexual, you know. I, so there's, there's no overlaps with the thema themes of the story. We, um, Frida kn knew him, she's um, Mexican, so she, she has a huge Latin American um, uh, group. Of, she, she has relationships with these directors. And, and I, I saw Gloria and I immediately felt he would be the right person. Um, do you want me to say why? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, have you seen Gloria? Yes. Because it's about what he does in it that is so extraordinary. He's a, he is a woman who's just about 60 years old. Her kids have left home and she starts to date. So it's about the dating escapades, the sexuality, the passions, the yearnings, the comedic incidents. The, the, it puts a 60-year-old woman front and center as a sexual being with appetites. And I, I, most films that I've seen, a woman that age would be relegated to the margins of storytelling and would be auntie, granny, whatever, you know. And, and the way he put a woman's subjectivity front and center like that, women who are normally marginalized in stories, I just felt he would have some kind of empathy for, for this story about, in the main, these two women's um, relationship with each other, but also that the, the, the man in the story too, and he really balanced, the, it's a three-hander, and he really balances it so that it's three, three people's points of views, and there is, unlike in Constant Gardener with Bill Nye, there really is no antagonist. As Sebastian says, the antagonist is within. That's right. And because we talked about the long take at the beginning of our conversation, it's one thing to do a long take when you're seated or standing, but here, that, that was, the camera movement didn't stop during that second scene, and you're walking the entire time. Um, was this something that Sebastian Lelio chose as a kind of way to shoot, or were you involved in the decision? No, I absolutely had nothing to do with anything from the moment, uh, the filming and the set designs, the production design cinema, no. I, at the moment of, that filming begins, I just become a, an actress and I surrender to um, my, tr my trust of him. I, I wouldn't be able to be inside and outside at the same time. So that everything you see is, is Sebastian's creation. 
I, though, got a sense, and maybe I was reading into the movie, that there are, as, that as a producer, you exercised a certain generosity. Because it, could, it really is Ronit's story. The movie begins with Ronit. And um, you seem to give more screen time later, when, once the Rachel McAdams story with you develops as a love story. I got the feeling that as a producer, you might have sacrificed some of your own moments on screen in the editing process in order to make Esti, her character, and Duvid more important. Well, it, the screenplay is such, and the story is such that, you know, Ronit is the witness to the extraordinary change that happens to, I don't want to give it away, but right. to Esti and Dovid's uh, life. My, my, my character's change is internal. I go home and I make peace with my community and I sort of make peace with my father even though he's dead, which is a, is a tall order, but it's kind of internal. But I, I, I didn't have anything to do with how the film was edited. But yes, as a producer, I definitely was happy to sacrifice um, some character moments for the sake of the story at large, if, if that's what you mean. Yeah, it, yeah. it felt that way. I, I could be wrong. And also, they just got better roles than me. <laughs> <laughs> no, your role is pretty good. I mean, again, it's not a film that allows for easy judgment about any of the characters. It's narratively elliptical, but it's actually sexually quite graphic. Mm. And um, the love scenes between you and Rachel McAdams, um, I was actually wondering whether you or Sebastian Lelio watched any films that had done in the past a, a really good job in depicting love relationships between women. Um, here I was thinking about maybe Philip Kaufman's Henry and June or the French drama Blue is the Warmest Color. Uh -huh. Was that at all part of the thinking or did did you simply go kind of with a freshness towards it? Yeah, after Toronto we had quite a few Jew is the Warmest Color um, headlines. but. Um, <laughs> I actually, I love that. I really like that film very much. Um, I did not do any um, film uh, film research in the lesbian genre for this. Probably the director, Sebastian, must, must have, have done himself. I don't know. You'll have to ask him. We, we didn't discuss it. In the script, it said something like, they make love. It was very um, in the text, not described. And But we took a day to shoot it, and Sebastian storyboarded it, which he didn't do with any of the, well, he didn't show us any storyboards for any other part of the film. So, so obviously. He, he had figured out all the, the gestures and uh, everything that happens was kind of like a, a sexual grammar that he created, and we were both okay with it. There was actually no um, uh, nudity on camera, if you see what I mean. So it was one woman's face in the frame in a state of pleasure, and then you had to imagine where is, the audience has to imagine where is the other woman's face, fingers, tongue, you know, whatever, whatever your imagination is imagining, which to me is more erotic than seeing naked bodies. That's right. Um, and it's, it's very much part of a character study and about disobedience and liberation um, while trying to retain the best aspects of what might be a truly Jewish identity. Um, I felt that as well, especially at the end of the film. I won't go into detail, but there is a great generosity in the film that emanates from all three characters, but especially David. Oh, yes. Um, and it, that, that to me was, 
I just realized we, we have gone, <clears throat> we were supposed to have a few minutes for audience questions, so I'm going to stop what, whatever I was going to ask. We're going to raise the lights slightly so that we get at least maybe two or three quick questions before we allow the wonderful Rachel Weiss to end what has been a very, very long day of Thanks. publicity. Oh. If we could raise the lights some more, we just have about like five minutes, but we will try to take a question or two if somebody has a hand that is raised Thank that I can see. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. Or madam. I madam. can't see a thing here. You haven't seen the film, but you've read the book. Is that right? Yeah. Right. So the relationship in that respect, um, how, how, does that, how does that play into um, the balance of, like, not like, it's not really a polyamorous relationship, really, but it's more of like a triangle. Mm. There's a question about what the balance of the three central the film departs from the novel in some quite major ways, which I won't tell you what they are. I'd love to hear after what you think. And we, we had Naomi Alderman's blessing uh, to do that. She said, this is a film version. It's a, it's a different living thing to, to my novel. Um, so I sort of, I don't want to tell you because I'll, I'll kind of ruin it if I do. But, um, but it is funny, it's making me think of, you know, you're saying from the Orthodox student, community and gay. I was talking to Rachel McAdams and um, she, she said the most touching thing. She said that um, she, she felt that Esty had managed to find a loophole in her religion, which meant that, I'm not telling you exactly what happens, but that she figured out that God loved her enough that he would allow her to be disobedient. And when she said, I found a loophole in my religion, I just thought, oh, she's actually Jewish now. I mean, it was just such a Jewish way of thinking of like interpreting, you know, Talmud interpreting scripture and like there's a way, there's a way to think around this with my interpretation and I just thought this, this beautiful creature from, from, who's not Jewish from Canada, she's became a Jew to me in that moment. But that's just a kind of anecdote rather than, I'm sorry, I'm not answering your question because I don't want to give it away. We've departed, I think, hopefully I, hopefully you'll like what we, we were disobedient to the novel. <laughs> Very. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's one right here. Yes? Yeah. I just want to preface this by saying that you've been my favorite actress since I was like four years old. Oh. You've been my favorite actress since I was four years old. Oh, thank you. <laughs> like, what ultimately draws you to accept a role personally? Um, I think now I, I would say I'm interested in characters who are, uh, who are, who um, have appetites for something. It could be anything. It could be, you know, in the Deep Blue Sea, she had this appetite for a younger man, and she was 
actually ruining her life. It wasn't a noble. Deborah Lipstadt's appetite was to, be, to, have, to speak her truth and her conscience. So it doesn't have to be, it's just, some, just the opposite of being anemic, you know, bloodless and not, and just being a, being a just someone without, with a hunger for something. I think that's what I like about characters. And as I mentioned before, contradictions. Um, in characters, things where you can't fit them neatly into a kind of moral slot. I, I think that plus the whole story, plus the director, so many things, but that would be my, my short, short answer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right, one more, the last one, quickie, yes. I read that your production company is looking for more female content. Can you talk about that? Your company is LC6, right? Mm -hmm. LC6? Yeah. That's the name. My company is, is, uh, is me, basically. <laughs> <laughs> me and a laptop. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, I have hundreds, a huge female work, workforce. No, I mean, I find it funny. I mean, it's a really valid question and, and an important question now, and I think it's very relevant, but people are, Hoping to tell more stories with women's subjectivity examined, written by women with a woman director. I do always find it really absurd that we have to talk about female content as if you know we're some outlying endangered species. I just always, I always, um, I'm sort of overcome by the sense of the absurd at this moment. But yes, I mean, we're half the planet. We are. We we live from our own subjectivity, and we're just very, very different. I think to men. I love stories by men, about men, with men, but I just, um, um, I, I mostly can only play women, so it's also, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sort of just what I can, uh, it's lim I, I'm limited in my role, so yeah, yeah. But yes, I'm, I'm always looking for stories about um, women. I'm sorry, am I being, like, not answering? No, it, that's, yeah. that's a valid answer, but I, I read that you're in pre-production on James Miranda Barry, the story of somebody who was born a woman, Margaret Bulky, but lived her entire life as a man, so that she could indeed study and practice medicine. Well, there is that that other option, just to play a man, but but that's a true story. It was uh, women couldn't um, go to college, let alone be doctors in the um, early 19th century. So yeah, she was a very fine um, surgeon. Um, so yeah, I'm looking, but she, she was a woman. Um, so yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> clearly. Well, I, I know that um, we have more questions for you, but I just want to say how grateful I think we all are that we get to see not just your passionate, warm, vibrant, living characters on screen, but the obviously human source of all of those roles. Oh, thank you so much, and thank good you luck with disobedience. And thank you. Thank you. I give you a kiss. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org. <laughs>